Thank you. Please be seated. Well, one God, the Father of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And last Thursday was Reformation Day. And that marked the anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed his 95 statements of belief on the door of the Wittenberg Church. And he did this challenging what the Catholic Church was teaching and encouraging them, demanding really, that they return to the Bible as their only source of truth. Now, the Reformation did not start with Martin Luther. The seeds of it started actually a couple of hundred years before that. But it was in 1517 with Luther that it finally took off. God was certainly at work within Martin Luther. God was certainly at work within many others, some of whose names we know, some of whose names are lost to history. But Luther succeeded where other people had failed. He sparked a fire that still is burning today. We're part of that. The time was ripe to challenge the doctrines of the church that were not found in the Bible. And there were plenty to choose from. The first one that Luther confronted, the first one that he chose, was the selling of indulgences to help those in purgatory get to heaven. That's what he challenged. The biblical belief to replace that was salvation by grace through faith alone. And that was the first big recovery of truth in the Reformation. But it's not the fact that Luther opposed indulgences that's important. What's important is why he opposed them. And the reason he opposed them was simple. Neither indulgences nor the purgatory they were supposed to help with are found in the Bible. Now, the odd thing is, the church knew they weren't in the Bible. But by this time, by the 16th century, the church was putting as much confidence in church councils, in the ancient fathers, or even the pope, as they did in the Bible. The church, if you look at it historically... The Christian church began to lose its way in the second and third centuries. You actually see that even start in the first century. Toward the end of his life, the last book that the Apostle Paul wrote is 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, Paul speaks that all those in Asia had turned away from him and his teaching. And this couldn't have been any later than 65 AD. By the time Luther came along, the church bore little resemblance to what we see in the book of Acts. It was in need of a reformation. And Luther challenged church authority by claiming that there was only one true authority, and that was the scriptures, the Bible. And that belief is captured in what we call the motto of the reformation. It's been around for 502 years, and it's only the scriptures. And we might not, today, living 500 years into the Reformation, understand the impact of that statement. Because at that time, the church had much more in addition to the Scriptures. And what Luther was calling people back to was the Scriptures. That was the foundation of the Reformation. It's still the foundation of what we're endeavoring to do here today at Grace Christian Fellowship. So when you look at the church from the second century onward, the church no longer kept to the scriptures as their only rule, their only guide for what to believe and how to live. 
By the time of Martin Luther, it was firmly established that church councils, the church fathers, and most particularly the pope represented additional standards of truth. Luther rejected that idea, and we reject it also, and here's why. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness. This Scripture, which is breathed out by God, contains everything you need. If you don't know it, you need to be taught, you need to be reproved or corrected, you need training in right living. The Scriptures contain it. And, you know, for us, looking back, it may seem obvious that the scriptures alone contain God's truth. But that wasn't at all obvious in 1517. Even today, church tradition plays too large a role in many churches around the world. It says that all scripture was breathed out by God. It doesn't say that everything a theologian says, everything a council decides, or anything the pope declares is breathed out by God. The doctrines that Luther opposed were all developed from sources other than the Bible. They were developed from sources, but they just weren't developed from the Bible. And therefore, he rejected them. We also reject anything that you cannot find in the Scriptures. So, we are a Reformation church. We are in the history and the stream of the Reformation. But the truth of the matter is, the Reformation has had such a gigantic effect on Christianity that every church has been affected by the Reformation. Even churches as conservative as the Russian Orthodox Church have been affected by the idea that we have to get back to the Scriptures. Now, in regaining truth, because the truth had been lost Okay, 1517, let's say it had been lost over a period of about 1,300 years. It didn't all come back in a snap. And along the way, there was always opposition to regaining biblical truth. Many men and women gave their lives for holding to the Bible as the only standard for truth. Thankfully, the church does not deal with dissent by burning people at the stake any longer. But there is still opposition when people bring forward the truth of God's Word. When I got in God's Word about 50 years ago, in the early 1970s, uh, at that time, there were many churches that said, if you spoke in tongues, that was of the devil, and you were going to hell. Now, the hell that they were describing is also something not found in the Bible, but that's another teaching. Today, 50 years later... Pretty much every church, every Christian church, recognizes the validity of the power of the Holy Spirit, even if they themselves don't operate it. They at least aren't sending people to hell for it anymore. That's a step in the right direction. The motto of the Reformation was only the Scriptures. It still needs to be our motto today. And, you know, Luther responded, Luther responded to the criticism that he received at a very... Uh, with a very stirring speech that's been recorded for us. He was standing before the king, or the, the Holy Roman Emperor, he would have been called, and he was brought before the king on a charge of heresy. And here is what he had to say when he stood before the king. He said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, 
For I do not trust either the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. May God help me. Amen. That was Martin Luther in 1521, which was four years into the Reformation. You and I are also bound by the scriptures. And my desire is to know and worship God as he is revealed in the Bible. But I didn't bring up the anniversary of the Reformation just to honor our history. That would be a good thing. It's good to remember where we came from. But I didn't bring it up just to honor our history, but to celebrate our present and an anticipation of where we can go in the future. Martin Luther made a great start, an absolutely wonderful start. He gave the church a rediscovered foundation in the scriptures, but there's still more that needs to be done. And since Martin Luther, the church has slowly continued to regain biblical truth. It moved from salvation by faith. It moved on to the power of the Holy Spirit. It moved on to the return of Christ for the church. It moved on to our identification with Christ today and all the authority that that brings. All these were unknown in 1517, and these and many other truths have continued to be rediscovered in God's Word. What has been slow to be regained is an understanding of God himself. And this misunderstanding of God has involved both his character what God is like, and his nature, who he is. And we want to look at this. This is a two-part teaching. We are going today consider and focus on how the Bible presents God as our Father. And then next week, we're going to look at Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the man who provided a way back to a relationship with God. So first, let me give you some background to this idea. All Christians and Jews believe in one God. Yay! But over the centuries, the understanding of both the nature and the character of this one God have gone through some dramatic and unfortunate changes. First, I want to deal with God's character. What is God like? You know, with people. You know, what's Mike like? Well, you don't know unless you talk to him. What's Doug like? What's Linda like? What is the character of God? For centuries, God was viewed primarily as an angry judge who was often disinterested in his people and the world that he had created and reluctant to answer their prayers, open to bribes. You could pay an indulgence to get people a prayer answered and somebody freed from purgatory. This was how people viewed God. And this carried on for 15, 1800 years. In colonial America in the 1740s, one of the most famous preachers of that time was a man named Jonathan Edwards. And his most famous sermon is still studied to this day. And you know what the title of that sermon was? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That is a gross misrepresentation of the character of God. That is not what our Heavenly Father is like. Let's take a look at Romans 2.4. You see, his 
His sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, what it was designed to do was to scare you into worshiping God. That's what it was designed to do. He wanted people to worship the true God. I mean, his intentions were good, but he tried to scare them into it. Look what it says in Romans 2.4. Again, the scriptures are our only standard for truth. How does God say he encourages people to worship him? It says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? More of God's characteristics. Kindness, forbearance, and patience. God does not have a short fuse, okay? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Rather than threats of punishment, here's God's plan to bring people to him. He is going to be so good to you that you run to his arms. That's his MO. That's what he does. This is the character of the God that we worship. You know, God is so good and loving that the prophet Jonah even complained about it. You remember Jonah, swallowed by the big fish? Jonah complained about God's goodness because Jonah wanted God to destroy Nineveh, a pagan nation. But God was perfectly content to save Nineveh, even though they were outside of Israel and outside of his covenant. Look what it says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it, the sparing of Nineveh, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was angry at God because God was merciful. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish. See, he, he did not want to go to preach in Nineveh because he knew what God's like. He says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I know all that, so I don't want to preach to these people. That's our God. This is his true, na- his true character. And you may have heard differently. I certainly heard differently when I grew up. My earliest memory, and I was no older than six, because we moved out of this apartment when I was six. So I was no older than six. My earliest frightening memory is being afraid that I was going to be sent to hell. Now, who, what was I told as a six-year-old that got me thinking that I was going to be sent to hell? I'm not sure. Maybe I was persecuting my little sister. But, but you see, that is based on an incorrect understanding of God. And these kinds of incorrect understandings of God are pervasive. Now, certainly those who choose to reject God and His Son will face judgment for that decision. But that's not God's desire. God loves us, and His desire is always our restoration. And that is through His Son. Let's take a look at a couple of more verses about the character of God. These are a pair of verses. They're pretty famous. I think you might, I'm sure you'll recognize at least one of them. 1 John chapter 4. Let's go there. So we have come to know and to believe. You see the two-step process? I've come to know. I've been given information. But just because you've been given information doesn't mean you believe it, right? Like you read the signs on the side of the road. Make $5,000 a week from home, in your pajamas. That's information you just got, right? Do we all run out and quit our jobs? No. 
We've, got, we've come to know something that we read on the side of the road, but we haven't come to believe it. Many Christians have come to know that God is love because they've been told it. But they haven't come to believe it. I want us to believe it. God is love. Isn't that great? God is love. He's not just loving. He's love. That is his character. That is the core of him. He can do no other. He can do nothing but love because that's what he is. And whoever abides in love abides in God. See, if you want to abide in God, you got to go where he is because God doesn't move. He doesn't change. He's always love. We want to abide in God, we get close. And God abides in him. John 3.16, if you've ever watched a football game, you're familiar at least with the reference, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is somebody I want to know. But who is this God of love and mercy and steadfastness? Who is this God who gave his only son not to judge me, but to save me? To answer those questions, or to further answer those questions, we go to the second area of misunderstanding about God. First, we considered the misunderstanding about God's character. Now we're going to look at God's very nature. Who or what is God? The Gospel of John is a good starting point for us. John 4.24, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit. Spirit is not physical matter. God is not a part of the physical universe. He created it. God is not dependent upon the physical universe for his existence. You and I are. Spirit is the very nature of our God. As I've said, all Jews and Christians believe in only one God. But how they describe this one God has undergone some dramatic changes over the centuries. The changes began in the mid-2nd century. Now, the 2nd century is like from 100 A.D. to 199 A.D., okay? That's what the 2nd century is. By the end of the 4th century, the idea of one God among most Christians was very different from Scripture both concerning his character, which we have covered, and his very nature. By the 4th century, the one God of the Bible was still one God. Yay! Got that right. But he began to be viewed as a trinity rather than as a single person. The trinity now consisted of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, there is the Father, there is the Son, and there is the Holy Spirit. But God does not call them a trinity. I want to give you a common orthodox definition of the trinity so you know what we're talking about. I've taken this from the Illustrated Bible Dictionary, which you may have seen. It's a very common evangelical dictionary. It's conservative in its outlook. It's pro-Trinitarian in its outlook. But here's what they had to say. It says, It, the doctrine of the trinity, makes three affirmations. That there is but one God that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each God, and that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each a distinct person. They go on in this same article to say this. 
though it is not a biblical doctrine in the sense that any formulation of it can be found in the Bible, it can be seen to underlie the revelation of God. And finally, they say, although Scripture does not give us a formulated doctrine of the Trinity, it contains all the elements out of which theology has constructed the doctrine. Constructing the doctrine out of non-biblical sources is exactly what Luther opposed about indulgences and purgatory. As you can see, even theologians who believe that God is a trinity admit that it's not revealed in Scripture. Now, this should send alarm bells to anyone who wants to use the Scriptures as their only rule for what they believe and how to live. Now, today, most Christians, not all, but most Christians would probably, if you ask them, they would say, yes, I believe that God is a trinity. But if you ask them to define that for you, the answers would be all over the map. Ask 12 Christians what to define the Trinity for you, they'll give you 15 answers. That's why I wanted to read to you what theologians consider to be an orthodox definition of it. There is another way to view God. It is a far older way, and that is to view God as a single person whose name in the Old Testament was revealed to us as Yahweh and who is known to us today as our Father. Isn't that an upgrade? It's like me. My name is Bob. I'm Bob to anybody. You come up, I'm Bob. I am dad to only two people. And I am papa for two more people. So I I now can talk to God the same way my children talk to me. That's a pretty upgrade. That's better than just knowing his name, wouldn't you say? Now, this is still how the Jews view God. They haven't changed in how they view God. Viewing the one God of the Bible as three combined persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is known as Trinitarian. It is one approach to trying to understand God and His Son and how redemption was accomplished. It's one of the approaches. Viewing God as a single being, the Father, and Jesus Christ as His Son is another approach. It's known, if you encounter this term, it's known as a biblical Unitarian. But which is the correct way according to the scriptures? Again, that's what we want. That's why I started with the Reformation. Which way is the correct way to look at God according to the scriptures? Or is there a different way and we should cast out both of these? Luther proclaimed that only the scriptures should govern our conscience. So that's what I want to do. Because it's all scripture that is God-breathed. Now, I realize that considering the Trinity can be looked at as the third rail of Christian doctrine. You know what the third rail is? If you didn't grow up in a city, you might not know. I grew up in New York City, the subway system. There's two rails. The two rails that the wheels are on, those are two rails. But there's a third rail running down the middle. And that third rail is high voltage. You don't touch the third rail or you get zapped. So this has come into, in America at least, it's come into our political language that certain topics in politics are the third rail. Today, Social Security is the third rail of American politics. No politician questions the value of Social Security without touching that third rail and getting voted out of office. Now, in the first century circumcision was the third rail. 
the Jews didn't mind Peter, James, John, and Paul talking about Jesus. Some of them did, but not all of them. They didn't mind you talking about Jesus. Didn't even mind considering Jesus as the Messiah. But when they went to saying, well, you don't need to be circumcised and follow the law anymore, that's when they lost their minds. That's when they picked up stones. That's when they started chasing people out of town. That was the third rail in the first century. Today, for many people, the third rail is considering the existence of God as a single person rather than as a trinity. Now, some early reformers were willing to touch this third rail. The first one was a Spaniard named Servetus, because remember, it was exciting times. The early 1500s were exciting. Finally, people were free from church tradition, and they were willing to consider everything, and they considered lots of things. Some things they had to discard, other things church wasn't ready for yet. But this man named Servetus did present, or at least all he did was say, hey guys, how come the word Trinity is not used in the Bible? And for that, they burned him at the stake. So people learned early on that you, you touch this, it's not good. But even with that, the idea of God as, a, as the Father alone spread throughout Eastern Europe and was quite common in the 17th century, but it was later persecuted out of existence. Here's the thing. The times were not ready yet to consider that. The time wasn't right to challenge the biblical validity of that. And this is the same for other things. You know, in 1517, the time was not right to challenge the church about the power of the Holy Spirit. It took about 350 years of Reformation existence before that could be brought up without getting burned at the stake. Some ideas, some truths from the Bible are just harder for people to get their arms around, not because they're difficult to understand, as we're going to see, but because they're wrapped in a lot of tradition that it takes people some time to get away from. So when you look at the Word of God, you're going to see how the Bible presents the nature of God. So the question is, is God a trinity? Now, if God is a trinity... He has never mentioned that to anyone. He has never spoken that. The word Trinity does not appear anywhere in the Bible. And to compensate for this lack of biblical evidence, the church came up with a whole array of words and terms that would then describe the Trinity. None of them are in the Bible. Here are some, I think you've probably heard some of them in the course of your life. Here are some of the words and terms used to describe God as a trinity. Triune God, God the Son, the God-man, God in three persons, three in one, incarnation, preexistence, eternally begotten, co-equal, and of course, trinity. How many have heard of any of those terms before in your life? Yeah, most of us have. None of them are in the Bible. Not a single one. That's an issue. That's a concern. This is strange indeed if the Trinity is the correct way for us to think about God. Now, you know what? I'm not saying this to criticize anybody. That's not my point at all. Just looking to see what does the Bible have to say about this very important issue. And when you look at the scriptures, you see very clearly that only the Father is called God and that Jesus Christ is his only begotten Son. As I mentioned, in the Old Testament, people address God by his covenant name of Yahweh. Look at Jeremiah 10.10. It says, But the Lord, that's the word Yahweh in Hebrew, is the true God. 
He is the living God and the everlasting King. And then in Deuteronomy, another, a very famous verse, Listen, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, is our God, the Lord alone. Jesus quoted this particular verse in the Gospels. It's when he was asked about the first and great commandment, first thing he said was that. That was the first thing he uttered. Now, why don't you put that word, that last verse back up again, Carolyn? See the word Lord there, L-O-R-D, how it's in all capital letters? Whenever you see the word Lord in the Old Testament in all capital letters, that tells you that it is a translation of Yahweh, which is the proper name of God. You might have heard it pronounced Yahweh. Some people pronounce it Jehovah. Same Hebrew word. So this is, to, this is not really, to us today, the word Lord is not a name. It's a title, right? Whereas this is actually God's name. His name was Yahweh. And for reasons I'm not going to get into today, the Jews stopped using that name and called him Lord instead. Now, in the New Testament, we see that this one true God, this, Yah, this one, God named Yahweh, is the Father of Jesus Christ. Jesus talked about this on many occasions. I want to look at the prayer that Jesus prayed just before he was arrested. This is in John chapter 17. I love the Gospel of John. John 17. It says in verse 1, These words spake Jesus, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify thee. And as thou hast given him power over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Who did Jesus address as the only true God? His Father. The Father was addressed by Jesus as the only true God. This is how God was viewed in the Old Testament. This is how Jesus describes God in the Gospels. I want to now jump to the church epistles written by Paul and show you one of the great verses on the nature of God and of His Son. We're going to look at this in more depth next Sunday, but I want to point it out to you here because it's just a great couple of verses. 1 Corinthians 8.4, if we could go to. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Then in verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and, quote, lords. Corinth is in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was full of gods and lords. Paul acknowledges that. He acknowledges, okay, there's plenty of things called God, plenty of things called Lord. Verse 6, Yet for us, yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. These verses and many others like them are clear about God being our Father. The Yahweh, His name Yahweh in the Old Testament to Christians today, He is our Father. Now, you may be wondering with so many clear verses in agreement, why don't more people recognize that the Father alone is God? Well, there have been more and more over the centuries growing to that recognition. But 
I can't obviously speak why everyone believes what they believe, but what I often discover when I speak to people is simply that they have been told that God is a trinity and that this is a mystery that nobody will be able to understand. So once they're told that, you know what happens next? They stop thinking about it. It's like when somebody comes up to me and talks about quantum physics. Okay, we're not going to think about that anymore. That's how people approach this. They've been taught, hey, look, God is a trinity, but you're never going to understand that. It's a mystery. Of course, the Bible doesn't call the trinity a mystery because the Bible doesn't mention the trinity at all. But more and more Christians are thinking about it. You know, when, in getting to know God better, when I, I'm talking to people about how to read the Bible, you know what one of the biggest keys to reading the Bible is? Read and think. Read and think. Not just read. Read and think. Yes, as Christians, we can do that. Now, more and more Christians are thinking about it, and they're coming to question the traditional doctrine of the Trinity. They may not be ready yet to change from it, but they are certainly beginning to modify how they look at God and His Son. That's a great first step. They usually, as in the past, face stiff opposition, but nobody's being burned at the stake. Now, there are, and we're going to look at this again next week, there are a handful of ambiguous verses about God and His Son, which we're going to look at a few of them anyway. How you view certain ambiguous verses, and when I say ambiguous, it means it could go either way. When it, when, how you look at ambiguous verses in the New Testament depends on whether or not you have decided ahead of time, does the Bible present God as a trinity or not? And I believe that God presents God that the Bible presents God as a single being, our Heavenly Father. That is the question you have to answer first. Other things fall into line once you answer that question, which I've just pointed you to a few of many verses that answer it. As in the Old Testament, Yahweh was the one true God. Jesus declared that this Yahweh is now our Father, and He's still the one true God. When we look at this next week, we're going to look at what I consider one of the most beautiful sections of Scripture, which has also been ambiguous for certain people over the centuries, and that is the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Now, I want to talk about disagreements about this important topic. Let me say this. Contrary to what many people think, Christians who call God a trinity can be born again. And Christians who look at God as the Father alone can also be born again. How do I know this? Well, I know many Christians who believe that God is a trinity and they speak in tongues, which means they are born again of God's Spirit and they are therefore a Christian. I know many other Christians who believe that the Father alone is God, and guess what? They also speak in tongues. So apparently this wasn't the deal breaker for God. The reason that they are both Christian is because they all, all Christians, is, I shouldn't say all because I haven't interviewed everybody, but pretty much any Christian I've ever encountered believes that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. When you do that, you become a Christian, even if you differ on the specifics. As a matter of fact, if you believe that and you're wrong about everything else, you're still a Christian. That's the graciousness of our God. So in closing... I want to consider the importance of a correct biblical understanding of God. Now, in my opinion, we've looked at two areas of misunderstanding of God today, His character and His nature. 
In my opinion, generally speaking, the greater damage to our Christian walk is done when we misunderstand God's character rather than his nature. But our desire is to know God according to what he's been revealed, both sides of it, his character and his nature. You see, misunderstanding the character of God prevents you from desiring a close relationship to him because he's dangerous. He's the guy with a ball bat. You know, you respect him, might be afraid of him, but get close to him. You see, that's why misunderstanding the character of God is such a dangerous thing. Misunderstanding the nature of God takes from God his unique position as the one true God. It also, and this we'll cover next week, it minimizes the great life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ as well as hindering our imitation of Christ. But things, as I said, are beginning to change. Bill Johnson, he's the pastor of Bethel Redding in California, someone I you know, greatly admire. I've heard a number of his teachings. And he, staunch, he would say he staunchly believes that God is a trinity. However, he has begun to greatly modify what he believes and how he describes it. I want to give you a quote of his from his book, God is good. Let's take a look at that. Let's face it. If Jesus did all his miracles as God, I'm still impressed. But that is an impossible example for me to follow. When I see that he did what he did as a man following his father, then I am compelled to do whatever I need to do to follow that example. I am no longer content to live as I am. And that lack of contentment on his part was spurred by recognizing that Jesus Christ must have done what he did as a man. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus Christ and his unique position as God's only begotten son and how we can follow that example. He set an example of walking with God that you and I can follow. It's not unachievable. It's well within grasp. But I want to close with two great verses well, Carolyn said, I only have one great verse. So Carolyn's holding, you only have one verse in the outline. Well, we'll have to turn to the other one because I just thought of this one. First Peter chapter 1. This is a great verse, just kind of summarizing what we've been looking at. To understand God and His Son. I forgot to put my glasses on. No wonder my notes looked a little fuzzy at times. I'm looking and saying, why are my notes looking fuzzy? But to read my Bible, I most certainly need my glasses. That's why you notice I pull out my phone because I can make the font really big. One verse per screen. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Or you can listen to me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God our Father is abundant in mercy, and through Jesus Christ, He has given us a way back to Him. And we'll close in Philippians 4.20, great verse of Scripture. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why don't you stand and we can all pray together, okay? To God be the glory. Great things He has done. I won't sing the whole song for you, but we'll pray. Yeah, you can come up after I pray, okay? Father God, in Christ Jesus' powerful name, we are just so blessed to have you as our dad, to have you in our lives, to know you as a loving God, as a kind God, 
as a God who pursues us with mercy. And I pray, Father, that this week we can come to know you better than we ever have before. I pray, God, that you would continue to open our eyes to what you are doing around us so that we can join you in your work of reaching the world for Jesus Christ. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.